0: Welcome to the Spike Feed, your leading Magic the Gathering podcast. My name is Curtis, just your typical Spike. On the line with me, uh a March Madness enthusiast. Oh my gosh. My right? good buddy and producer Extraordinaire, Cameron McCoy. Dude, how you doing?
1: Getting those those uh those ranking and pairings all ready to go for my for my March Madness chart.
0: It's it's a bracket. It's not a bracket chart, there. but <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> But, like, I, I'm not going to critique you too much, dude, because I am not a basketball fan. Like, <coughs> basketball, UFC, I tend to... Hockey, I tend to not watch either. I have a ton of respect. I don't think they're silly or anything like that. Yeah, but yeah. I'm a, I'm a football, baseball guy. Um, It's almost like those are the two pro sports that my city offers or something. <laughs> um, And it looks like there might not be baseball, so... Um, just when magic is completely falling apart, baseball decided to do one better. It's exciting. <laughs> exciting times for me. So, we're not that far off from becoming a NASCAR dad, I'm just saying. Oh, um, wow. okay. Yeah, um, <coughs> but, Cameron, this is going to be a short show in terms of magic content. This is a thing that we're going to battle in terms of, hey, there's not a lot of competitive magic happening these days. Um... <laughs> Neon Dynasty has kind of hit. We're starting to settle in. Where have you been with that, dude?
1: Yeah, uh, so I've actually picked up all the paper elements for a blue-white control list, Um, and this is going to be like your most Drago sort of uh, control list that you can be playing, and I really like it. Um, As I've said, I think the last two weeks, the Lear Goldspan Dragon deck just isn't speaking for me like i'm just not like liking the play the interactions with that the card pool all of it i i've lost so many games with that even though it's putting up a lot of results i think people are just coming prepared for it um and yeah it's just not my play style the blue white control list however is got all the paper elements went to a uh thursday night magic Uh, there wasn't a huge amount of people there, but there was enough for, um, there was eight people there in order to, to play. I ended up going, uh, 3-1, which I was pretty happy with. And this list, oh, dude, there's so many things that I like about it. Spirited Camp Companion, just a 1-1 body that allows you to draw a card. Hallbreaker Horror, Mm -hmm. which, like, endgame is just still nutso. Uh, The Wandering Emperor... Is such a great gotcha card. (laughs) I love having a Flash Planeswalker than just being able to exile whatever they're attacking with. Um, So that's been great. Um, This meta that I played against was interesting in the fact that it was a lot of, like, white X decks. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, like, black, white red white green white i mean like i there was a lot of like there were three different like x white decks there. including you I, ex- I, yeah i guess including me um but all i think really on the whatever you're doing with either the black white or the red white it's all on the back of luminarch aspirin which continues to be i think one of the best creatures um in standard right now um I have no issues with it. I think it's incredibly good, and if it's left it's unchecked, gotta get
0: nerfed, Cameron. It's gotta cow. get nerfed. Yeah. Uh, like, oh my gosh. <laughs>
1: um, so, I'm liking it. I'm liking what I've I've seen with the standard. Some other cards of note, something that we haven't talked about um, that I've found to be incredibly good is I cannot remember the name of the card. Um, March of the Otherworldly Light.
0: Yeah, we have not talked which, about that card. That's true.
1: Um, incredible removal spell like i i this is the sort of removal spell that i absolutely love there's a downside but it is a for the most part remove anything from the game sort of card um so it um you can exile a white card and it costs two less for each one it's x and a white and then you can just re- uh, exile artifact creature enchantment uh with x right so it can get so much off of the battlefield, especially in those early games, to set up something for, like, a Doomscar or a Farewell later on in the game. So I've had really good success with that. The only thing that I would say that this deck is kind of just not great with is against, like, other Planeswalker decks. I've, um, like, that's where I feel like I just don't have, like, a lot of great... Um, unless, I'm, unless I'm doing like a disdainful stroke or something like that, I just don't have a lot of great ways to interact with that. But otherwise, dude, you know, turn eight, Hullbreaker Horror, and like I'm bouncing things back to their hand and away we go. It's great.
0: So, really, Black White Midrange is the only deck that runs a substantial amount of Planeswalkers, right? And even then, it's like three to six, right? Some yeah. combination of Lolth soren wandering emperor (laughs) so i i dude i've been playing the standard a lot and i kind of like i said it bums me out that this standard is pretty dang good with a lot of balance and a lot of good play patterns and it's kind of just not talked about now we saw and i shared with you some we'll say i i haven't like sourced past this but like a lot more people are playing standard than alchemy um The number that I think was in the thing was over 250,000 games of Standard and 19,000 games of Alchemy. Um, So maybe more people are playing it than are talking about it. It's just because there's not a large tournament presence for it. We don't get the articles and get the content about it and all that. But I think there's a lot to say and a lot to tune. Um, I will say that, you know, the Nye Enchantments deck last week, I think I'd never played against it. Well, that changed this week. Yeah. See that thing all the time. And I do not like... That I've never liked that kind of deck in a standard because there was one in the, um, Theros block standard. I don't know if you remember where it was like, pile a bunch of enchantments or protection effects on a guy and, mm-hmm. um, it in fact, tends to play the same way. And the thing that I don't like about it, especially within the context of standard, is it can make mid range decks a little ineffective, because <coughs> there's these glass cannon decks that sometimes have invasion. Uh, or I should say, of Asian, and they just, like, go around you, and then it didn't matter that you had this huge on-board presence, right? Um, that being said, those decks also tend to struggle against control, and I've been playing almost exclusively Hinata Control and doing just fine. Yes, sometimes they get me, they go off, I only have one out, and they have the snakeskin Veil, or whatever, that does happen, of course. But then there's other times where you know They're also running kind of lean on mana, and they get stuck on two or three mana. And literally, I just blow up stuff on my turn, so mm-hmm. their protection effects don't pump it. And then it's just like, well, there was that. So it's one of those that, that when the deck goes, it really goes. Um, but dude, I, I like you, I have not loved the Leer version of those decks. Mm-hmm. I've played the Goldspan Dragon Hinata version. And then I also mess around a lot. We talked about Unexpected Windfall. But, like, uh, Valorous Stance especially has been, like... I found been really ineffective. Yeah. Like, a lot of decks have it as a one or two of. And usually I don't need to protect my Hinata when I have it down. And like you, I play against a lot of white or white-red decks. And the Valorous Stance, I don't have the ability to, like, protect my own Hinata... And I, th- none of their creatures are big enough to you know hit with this thing, and I'm like I would always rather have an a braid or a burning hands or yep. whatever. So um, the the weird card that is like steadily just gotten better and better because of how the meta has laid out is spike field hazard. Yet again, um, there are so many like especially against the snide enchantment deck, they go to you, just go for it, and you're like oh spike field hazard <laughs> or double spike field hazard, and even if it's a two for two. It's mm-hmm. completely worth it, and really gets them off-tempo, you know? <clears throat> but, yeah, I've, I've been playing entirely just guy. I've seen both the blue-white and the Esper control, and I just haven't touched him yet. And I do want to play the Naya Enchantments deck just to get a feel that's for that's it. It's interesting, yeah. But it costs a million wild cards that I don't have, mm. right? Actually, yep. that's not true. There's a lot of uncommons, but still... Whenever we're talking like, hey, you need 12 more wild cards. It's like, well, that ain't happening, right? I just have run... I I would say since I've really cut back on spending money on Arena, the thing that has happened is I just don't build all the decks. Yep. I end up just kind of staying in a lane and staying there, right? Um, Which I don't know if that's
1: good or bad, right? I mean, because I felt the same way. I mean, obviously for a Magic podcast, it's great to have additional content. But for like just the health of getting reps in and playing, I don't know which way is better. I've been struggling with that as well.
0: Yeah, and I would say that it's probably better to play everything, but I just don't know if we're not talking about preparing for a tournament. Then I don't know that I'm worried about playing a gauntlet of decks. Yeah, you know, and and like this is this is the thing that they struggled with in the process of gutting competitive play is the the raison d'être of like playing competitive magic just kind of evaporates until you're just like like basically like you and I it's just inertia Mm -hmm. it's like this is literally what I've been doing for 10 years and it helps me kind of mentally and stay on top of things but you've turned what was once a social gathering competitive like thing hobby like lifestyle into what amounts to now my daily Sudoku puzzle (laughs) and that's a little bit of a bummer you know um Sudoku, guys, was like Wordle before Wordle, if, you, <laughs> if you're struggling with that, right? Um, well, here's the thing, Cameron. News-wise, there's not a lot. There are these watches, right? Mm-hmm. And hold on. I'm going to go to the conversion. I don't know what, how much this actually is. <laughs> I, I, this is where we're missing Dustin, because my man could convert yeah. yen to dollars. All right, so these are two hundred dollars watches. Um, they look nice. Cameron, I am, I am a, I am a pretend not watch snob. No one would call me a for real one. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, I've gotten to the point where we'll say I like a good timepiece. Okay. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I don't know about these.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if it was built by Rolex, we might be having a different conversation, right? Uh.
0: <laughs> well, it doesn't say that they're well. Qu- well, maybe it does. I, I'm not. I can't read the kanji, but if they're quartz, I it's hard. It's hard, hard, hard. So first of all, if you like to look at these, go for it. What's yeah. wonderful about watches? It's very subjective, and there's not necessarily a correct answer. Um, but once you cross that hundred dollar barrier and it's still a quartz watch, there really needs to be some really strong finishing. It needs to be like really, really, really well made because mm. the inside is just basically a circuit thingy-majigger with a with a battery, <laughs> Right, yeah. You know? Whereas like mechanical watches, we're talking about dozens if not hundreds of moving parts, which is a reason that they cost so much. You know, there, there's like a rationale behind, maybe not a Rolex per se, but let's just say, you know, you can get a fully automatic Seiko for about half this. Yeah, It's going gonna, it's gonna to last longer. It's going to look better. Uh, uh, an Orient is kind of in that same range. And if you're talking about buying a quartz watch, look, I know this is a basic opinion. Just buy a G-Shock. <laughs> it's true, right? In fact, really, if you ever, ever, ever need a watch, just buy a G-Shock, right? <laughs> It'll last you forever. You that's like the best $40 you could possibly spend. That's the battery power. <laughs> and then if you want to go to the solar power, they're like $80. I my G Shock from 11 years ago is mm-hmm. a solar power one. Still keeps perfect time. Like with the satellite, Cameron. Like I've never set the time on that thing is money, right? Yeah. Uh are they the most attractive watches in the world? No. If you like these looks, that's great. But I'm just saying maybe from the watch guy perspective, you're not going to get a lot of cred for wearing this. <laughs> right? Whereas if you wear if you wear a G Shock, Watch Guy, the dude who shows up in a Rolex, he will respect a G Shock. Yeah. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. <laughs> That's just facts. Okay, Cameron?
1: Life lessons As- with Curtis.
0: <laughs> I mean, like literally, dude, I'm trying to think of of a more well respected low cost brand than Casio with their G Shocks. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Listener, if you take nothing else away from this episode, if you're looking for a non-smart, just buy a G Shock. Okay. <laughs> um anyway, uh let's talk about new is it new Capina? That's how I'm saying it.
1: We're gonna go with that. New Capina. Right? Yeah, Capina. <laughs>
0: Hey, uh, there's new kind of shards. So just like, um, Strixhaven had like Silver Quill instead of Orzhov or whatever, we're redefining some of the shards, which, eh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting new triumphs, which are, I mean, very, very good, nearly busted lands. And, uh, like, literally, I don't know if... I mean, I shouldn't say busted. In standard, they're about as good as a land could possibly be in standard. Absolutely, right. Yeah. Um, what's your takes, dude?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's great to see that they've been rounded out. Like, I like that we're having a smaller window for that to happen. It's not going to be eight years between triumphs, you know? So I do like that. Uh, am I actually looking forward to playing these again in standard? Yeah, not so much. I feel like they really do kind of encourage some of these like absurd decks with no restrictions whatsoever. Um, which, you know, can be kind of problematic. Um, and because it's such a small window, I just feel like we just had triumphs. I, and like the mana cycle right now is so dang good and standard. I actually, I I genuinely love it. Um, it's going to be hard to go back to like, Oh, now we got triumphs again.
0: Yeah. And it's, The hope is that Standard is designed in such a way where these fit like the Shards of Alara lands did. Where, hey, I'm playing these three colors, this fits it. But the problem with these has been, because it's a cycling thing, um, even if you're playing two of these colors. Like, the Rogue's deck played three of those because it was a dual land that came into play tapped. Yeah, but you could cycle it. And so you kind of always ended up playing these, right? Mm. Even if it was like one color extra. And I didn't love that about him, and but you, who knows how much of this is post-traumatic stress from? Right. I mean, <laughs> some really rough standards, perhaps the roughest standards. Right. Yeah. Uh, I remember in quarantine, you know, dropping whatever a hundred bucks on the what was the one with the companions? Icoria. Oh, yeah. Uh, Icoria packs. And then getting these and putting together the the Yorian Agent of Treachery deck, yeah. and really questioning how much fun I was having with Magic: The Gathering.
1: <laughs> You're winning, but is that enough? <laughs>
0: yeah, but you know, the first time you took like somebody th- somebody's third land with mm. an Agent of Treachery, you, you know. The the Indiana Jones over your shoulder, you know, you want to get nasty, let's get nasty. <laughs> that's that's kinda yeah that's kinda where we were. Oh uh, yeah. Um anyway, so Cameron, let's get out of the segment. I there's like I said, there's not a ton of magic to talk about today. I do want to cover uh the Batman with you. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go see it in like literally an hour. Oh. So okay. <laughs> let's get out of the segment, come back and talk about it. So, Cameron, before we get into the Batman, I do want to mention the Netflix series Race featuring Bubble Wallace. Do you know Mm. about this? I'm familiar with it. You mentioned it last week to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watched the whole documentary. (laughs) And I'm not a NASCAR fan. I'm an F1 fan. But it is a Netflix documentary in the style of F1 Drive to Survive. Um, And it's following Bubble Wallace uh, in NASCAR and kind of his... Uh, for those of you who don't know, he was kind of the central figure in in this controversy regarding NASCAR and race. And I thought it was good, not as good as F1 Drive to Survive. And largely because it just kind of focused on one team and one driver. Um, and didn't really reveal a lot of the complexities about the sport. I think that's one of the things that F1 Drive to Survive does really well. It kind of it, like instills in you what's impressive about these people and and what they have to do on a technical level um and i think nascar unfortunately is saddled with this kind of you know rednecks and left turns and stuff and the the kind of art of what they're doing isn't necessarily carried through however there are some really good elements to this show it's definitely not a waste of time and there's a lot of cultural things as a like i said when you're a missourian you're kind of a quasi southerner right like <laughs> the ha- the the southern half of your state is hundred percent the south Mm-hmm. The hun- the the northern half of the state is very much a midwestern state, so you kind of you kind of get that experience and kind of seeing the NASCAR culture and how it deals with all this stuff is really intriguing. I, again, it, it doesn't paint with a super broad brush, um, the way that I think it could, and kind of stereotyping all NASCAR fans or whatever. So, mm-hmm. a good documentary should you watch F one first? Drive to Survive, absolutely. New season is Friday. Oh, nice. Which. Which means, uh, on another note, our next episode might be a little late. But that's it's unrelated, Cameron. It's unrelated. <laughs> anyway, what's been going on with you this week? You still been plugging away on Elden Ring, dude? Elden Ring, um,
1: hot take from Cameron McCoy. Best game ever. I mean, like it is so. I mean, it is so good. So so good. Uh, I just got to. I, I went through the first quote dungeon of this game. Um, which becomes OG Dark Souls. Like, I mean, there is, like, a Dark Souls game within this giant open world game, right? And, um, I mean, I spent, like, 10 hours in this dungeon unlocking the paths and everything was connected. Um, you know, there's multiple bosses within it. It was, um... An incredible experience, and I, I was my mind was blown that this was in this other game, essentially. Uh, incredible, absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah, I think you've seen hints of their ability to do this. Where, like in Dark Souls, when you get carried off and you you go to the kind of the the top of the whole structure where mm. everyone like there's that moment in Sekiro. It's where you go to the waterfall area yeah right there's there's those like hints there's a there's a probably the strongest moment of bloodborne is a thing like that um and uh but like this man it just seems like from what i've read it's that layer like there's just so many layers to elden ring and it kind of feels like this ideal of what you want an action role-playing game to be yeah because from my understanding if you even try and follow a guide it's really i mean yeah you can do that but everyone gets such a different experience based upon what they find that it's really hard to like oh hey i'm going to check out what i should do at hour 10 yeah that that's somebody else's hour 2 and that's somebody else's hour 20 i mean right? to the
1: point where like there's like key quest items like i mean things that are integral to the story where you could just completely bypass and i mean com- i mean like 100% bypass and never use thinking it's actually like an end game element or like this core component which it is you don't have to have it. You can just keep on going. Like the diversity of like how you can experience that game, as you're saying, um, is is truly like a masterpiece. I, I think.
0: And uh, well, hey, as soon as I finish Horizon, <laughs> I'm on that. I I think I'll probably like Elden Ring better than Horizon, which is kind of partially my reason for going in this order. Sure. Yeah. Horizon is really, really good. <laughs> so it's it looks like, good. <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean, I've I've liked it so much better than the first one. And awesome. okay. I really liked the first one. Yeah. Um and there's some story stuff that I would ask you to stay away from. But I would say this one goes harder in sci-fi than the previous one. All right. I'm down. <laughs> yeah. I really twist your arm, right? <laughs> so tell me about the Batman, dude. Oh, dude, the Batman. Um this is probably
1: the most comic booky batman that's been put to film i'll put it that way um Go it's on. by f- far not a perfect movie it's 3 hours in runtime um and it really kind of feels like it at certain points where it's like you could have trimmed here here and here i think but uh i mean like there is like journaling vo right so it's like straight out of batman year one it's dealing with like a halloween element that has like that long halloween um element you know i mean it it just like throws out references of Bloodhaven and all these other it's like it's all there you know and like like it really feels like this is as close to a comic book like just reading a comic book as you're going to get I would say the issue is is that it's pretty average as far as like a Batman story goes. It's yeah. not like gonna it's not amazing in any one particular way, but overall, I like I enjoyed it. Um, this Batman very much more of like a detective. I really liked Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon, and like. There's, like, a legit relationship between Batman and Commissioner Gordon where they're working together. Like, I mean, Mm. side by side working together, which we've never seen before. And I love that. Like, that aspect of it I thought was great. Um, Catwoman was amazing. Um, And the way they kind of tie all these disparate villains together was, I I thought, interesting. Um, Where it did kind of pay off. Like I said, just an average Batman story. But, like, we got a Batman story, which – I'm never going to, you know, turn
0: down. So let's just get this out of the way. Jeffrey Wright never sucks. Everything I've ever seen him in, he is lights out. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. He's great. Um, Yeah. Anyway, uh, I've like, I kind of think he carried Westworld season one. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so controversial thoughts there, I, I suppose. But to your point, I also – so my brother-in-law said easily, easily, easily the best Batman movie he's, that's ever been made. Though he said there were still problems. Um, the, the problem is with all the Batman films, all of them, is they – I shouldn't say all – the most recent batch of them don't really nail plot, right? Mm-hmm. The best Batman stories have a really cohesive narrative. I would argue that the Nolan stuff, and from what I understand about this – Is so much more about the tone of it um, than the actual plot, like machinations. Yeah. And the best Batman stories have kind of an Agatha Christie thing to them. Yeah. Right, where it's a really kind of tightly wound um, murder mystery thing to it too, and you just don't necessarily know. Like, it might not be hard to figure out, but it's still got. I mean, calling it a Scooby Doo thing would be really oversimplifying it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes, pulling the strings, and that goes from Long Halloween, Court of Owls. I mean, we could go on down this list, right? Yeah. And so those are the best Batman stories. However, there are a lot of very average Batman stories where you know, the the way that the thing is concluded is not the best. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would argue that the most recent batch of Batman writers... I mean, dude, you're talking to a guy that I just literally bought the last five (laughs) issues of Batman yesterday. Yeah. So I'm a Batman (laughs) subscriber... You know, I I love this stuff. This is not me just kind of shooting from the hip. I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, but the strength in Batman, I think, is um, the way that which you can interpret the villains. And specifically, I know a lot of people have had trouble with the Riddler. What I want to know from you is: is this is this people that like expected the Riddler to be silly and don't like the whole serial killer vibe? Like, did you have a problem with how the Riddler was portrayed?
1: No, and. Honestly, like kind of like that trajectory and like w- what his end game is might be a little convoluted, but it is the Riddler and that's kind of the point. You know, I mean, he is a mm-hmm. genius. Right. Um, and I really liked how he was able to kind of grow an audience and they kind of play with like that online sort of thing. And so there are some interesting things that they they did with it. And. Um yeah, I just I, I guess I, I, I liked what they did with the Riddler. I mean, it was darker and yeah, not <laughs> Jim Carrey or the animated series Riddler by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but like what they did with it, I it worked for me.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's been interesting because to a lot of people that especially aren't maybe readers of Batman, to them the like kind of base version of Batman is the Tim Burton first Batman film, Mm -hmm. and that is such a, it's a dark version on the old 60s TV show, and like super duper disconnected from like the actual, you know, Batman comic books, (laughs) that it's weird to hear people say these things about like, oh, you know, Batman's gotten so dark, blah, blah, and it's kind of like, dude, like, I mean, I'm almost 40, the first comic book trade I ever bought was Batman, A Lonely Place of Dying, and it was about (laughs) the joker like the aftermath of the joker killing robin and Mm -hmm. trying to find the psychological will to get a new partner like i mean i read that in like 1988 (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, so we've been here for like a long time so i think the idea that that maybe and maybe it's because these other superhero movies occasionally have dabbled in other like uh, grittiness that somehow that like it's kind of like accusing green day of being too pop punk you know what i mean (laughs) Like, that's kind of the point <laughs> that's kind of what they are that's kind of what batman is yeah right? yeah yeah for sure and and it's more of a problem when you're making superman be that yes or flash be that or aquaman be a weird surfer bro in that <laughs> you know just as examples off the top of my head um but yeah dude i i'm i'm stoked to see it like basically i am exclusively seeing it by myself like my wife has said like i'm just gonna watch the kids Get out of here because I've had go. like kind of yeah. a stressful week, <laughs> and I'm just gonna go to my local cheap movie theater and watch it here in about like you know 45 minutes. So pretty pumped, awesome, man. Dude.
1: Good, good.
0: Um. Anyway, and then you will get like a lot of texts from me.
1: I I, I want to know the immediate reaction because I'd be curious uh, how much you hate her or how much you love it. There's no oh. in
0: between. <laughs> Expect a novella. All right, man. If someone would like to get a hold of you and give you their Batman rankings. That may or may not include George Clooney. Where could they find it? <laughs> That's
1: all on Twitter at Cameron underscore McCoy.
0: I am at Curtis now. Our official show feed is at SpikefeedMTG. We will check you guys next week.